Oh, yeah. Sweet Caroline. Never fails. What's up, everybody? How we doing? Oh, wow. Janetta? Janete. Janete. Janete, how are you doing this morning? Good. Good. I uh, am doing pretty amazing, if you ask me. I, uh, well, just to let you know, the Celtics did win last night. Which did ruin my evening, but um, everything else is good. So I told you guys I am one of seven kids, and we always had like three or so foreign exchange students living with us because my mom studied French when she was in college. So we always had these like French girls living at our house so my mom could like maintain her level of fluency. Um, And our house was always crowded. We lived in a small house, but there was a time in high school when I began to notice this unique stench in our house. We had a couple dogs, and I was like, man, I'm not really sure what's going on here. It just smelled bad in our living room. So I did what anybody else would do. I got some Febreze. I would spray that everywhere. The stench was still there. I went to Yankee Candle, and I just said, give me your strongest candles. And they're like, we got what you need. So I go, and I mean, this thing looks like a, a bachelor rose ceremony in our living room every day, because I'm trying to mask the stench. One day I'm in there, I'm playing piano, and I just see like uh, something out of the corner of my eye. And I look and I, what was that? And I see it again, and it's one little rat. And I go, nah, no worries. I set some traps, I kill a rat, it's done. But the next day I'm there and I see another rat. And I'm like, what is this, Lazarus the rat? How do, who resurrected this guy? I killed this dude. See another rat. Turns out, have you guys ever seen the movie Ratatouille? You know the part where the grandma like shoots the chandelier and the ceiling comes down and it's just like a tribe of rats living in the house? I see this rat go into a hole in our living room and I'm just like, no chance. I take a hammer and I just bang the wall and the wall falls down and there's just a family of rats living in our house. Now, what does any normal person do at that point? No, they, they, yeah, they scream. They scream, but my mom comes in. She's like, oh, my house, my house. And she's my son, what have you done? And I said, save your life from the rats. But there's hundreds of these things and they're all outside. I mean, I was like, this is a joke. What we had to do is we had to tear down the entire living room, put new walls up, new carpet, spray everything. What we needed was not a spraying of Febreze to cover up a stench. What we needed was to totally reconstruct and totally recraft our entire living room because what was there before wasn't small, it wasn't peripheral, it wasn't just one rat out of the corner of my eye. There was an infestation, an infestation. Now what we talked about over yesterday was that the human heart is not just, there's not just a corner of sin here and there, there's not just one rat here, one rat there. There's an infestation in our heart that needs to be totally renewed. We have to go in, God does, God has to take our dirty hearts and he has to totally recraft them in order that we might long to know him. 
Last night we talked about what that looks like when Jesus offers those who believe in him rebirth, meaning that when you and I come to know Jesus, he's not taking asleep hearts and waking them up. Hey, wake up, you know, some smelling salts like from a hockey practice. No, what he's doing is he's resurrecting dead hearts. But the question for us this morning, if you're in Christ, is what is God's will for my life until I meet him face to face? What does God want from those whom he has remade until we are one day finally and completely renewed? And to answer that question, I wanna look with you at our passage in Ephesians 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. And while you turn, let me pray for us once more. God, we're so thankful, Lord, for the living word of God. Lord, I pray, Lord, for the students in here that you'd make them receptive to your word. God, we're thankful, Lord, for the truth of scripture. God, give us just a great joy that comes from knowing you. Thank you for the love of God. Lord, we're, um, we're just thankful for the demonstration of that love at the cross of Calvary, but Lord, the ongoing demonstration of the love of God is right now, it says in John 14, you're preparing a home for us in glory. It says the spirit of God intercedes for us in Romans with groanings too deep for words. And so God, we can never be separated from your love. It's not just something that you showed us once upon a time. It's something that fills our hearts even now. And so Lord, would the love of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, compel us to live a life that honors you. God, I pray for these students as they go home to their churches, and Lord, as they make decisions after high school and what college they would go to. Lord, I pray that the main funnel by which they make every decision in their life, whether that be relationships, colleges, would be how can I grow most in my walk and understanding of who God is? We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. We pray this in your name, amen. Okay, Ephesians 4, we're picking up. It says in Ephesians 4.22 that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Paul says you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, here's the question, and I want you to think with me. God has remade us, but then maybe you're going, man, but there's still so many times in my life where I'm tempted by sin. There's still many things in my life that I know are wrong, that I know are dishonoring to God, that I know I shouldn't do, but I still want to do. Anybody feel that way ever? My, now my question for you is, do you long to be freed and delivered from duty-driven Christianity? Meaning that, do you want so badly to want to do what you ought to do? Now, we often sing a song that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is, anybody know? Freedom. Now the question is, if you're thinking with me, and if I can play devil's advocate with you, how can the spirit of the Lord bring freedom when if I become a Christian, it seems like now I have to do a bunch of things I wasn't doing before and I can't do a lot of things that I was doing before. So is that freedom? That feels more like prison to me than freedom. Have you ever thought that way? So the spirit of the Lord is freedom, but now I can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. So how can what I want to do be what I ought to do? That's the question. Well, let me tell you this. Walking with God only feels like freedom when we have something called the renewing of our minds. 
If you want to long to do what God wants you to do, then you need to pray to God and look to his word and be filled with the spirit and ask him, not only God do I want my heart remade, I need every single day until I meet you face to face to have my mind renewed. Much can be said about the anti-intellectualism of the Christian faith today, but the Christian faith is essentially thinking. The Christian faith is a thinking faith. It says in Proverbs, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, what? Mind and strength. Meaning that when you come to Christ, it's not a check your brain at the door faith. It is a faith where you present your entire heart, but not just your heart, your mind to God so that your mind might be renewed. Paul's gonna say the same thing in Romans 12. He's gonna say, therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship, meaning in light of what God has done. He died for you, so what's the only logical response? I need to live for him. Now how do we do that? Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, you're maybe familiar with the verse. He says, do not be what? Conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The world that you live in wants to be partners with you. The world wants to suck you into its mold. It wants you to, yeah, proclaim Christ, but we want you to be exactly like us. So Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. It's trying to make its stamp upon you. You live under the direct influence of the world 16 hours a day. And all you have to do to be conformed to the world is just live in it. But Paul says, you're not to be conformed like to the world. You're not supposed to be like the world. You're supposed to be transformed. How are we transformed? How can I become more like Jesus? That's what we've been singing this week, right? That's Kendall's song. How can I become more like Jesus? There is only one way you become more like Jesus. And it's through God's word, through his spirit, amongst his people, having your mind transformed. The Christian life doesn't mean that you go from the to-do list of your desires to the to-do list of better behavior. The Christian life is all about internal transformation where your affections change. Do you know that when you come to Christ, he says in Ezekiel, we read this yesterday, that God says, I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and I will, it says in Jeremiah, give my people a heart that longs to know them. The Christian life is all about being transformed. And we are to do that by the renewing of our mind. Now what's so important about the mind? Well in your mind you make decisions. And your will is the subject of your affections. And what you put behind the steering wheel of your mind is going to direct every single thing in your life. John Stott says the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. But this isn't just the opinion of an English theologian. This is the anthem of all of scripture. You do not understand the Christian faith if you do not understand that all of it is based upon a submitting of your mind to God so that it would be progressively renewed. Your heart is changed in a moment, but your mind is changed over a lifetime. Here's what it says in Peter 1.13. First Peter, prepare your minds for action. Ephesians 4, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
Even when we look at how the Bible speaks about an unbeliever, someone who rejects God, do you wanna know how Satan works in the minds of an unbeliever? Remember we talked about Satan being a real being. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, here's Satan's strategy. Satan's strategy in your life is often similar if you're in Christ, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, everything in the Christian life is a subject of the mind and it needs to be renewed. So how is the mind actually changed? Paul says we need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How is the mind actually changed? Can you just write down one verse for, you, for me and I think this will be helpful. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face as in a mirror are beholding the glory of the Lord and we are transformed from one degree into another. What? Here, here's the bottom line, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says in 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is, talk to me, freedom. And then the next verse say, if you want the Christian life to feel like freedom, you become like what you behold. A steady gaze upon Jesus Christ is the only way your mind is transformed because only when you look to God in his word will you be able to remain and abide in his love, will you be able to understand the warnings against sin, the promises to those who live a life of righteousness, only then can sin become disgusting to you. You understand this, maybe you've even used sins that are commonly struggled with among students and many people today, but whatever it is, if you go like, it's, it's lust or anger or gossip, the mind is to be transformed in such a way where you not just go, stay away, stay away, stay away, that's bad. I want to come to a place in my life, and maybe you do, where the sin that used to tempt me is disgusting to me. I truly hate it. It's not just like a fish out of water where the longer I stay away from sin, I'm just, <gasps> and you just feel like you're just suffocating there. Navy SEALs can hold their breath for four minutes, but you abstaining from sin shouldn't feel like a fish out of water. It should feel like freedom and it should feel like breathing. It should finally feel like life. And the only way where you can look at your sin and go, you disgust me. I'm not even tempted by that anymore. That's garbage is if you submit your minds to God to be transformed. And so the question is, do you spend more time scrolling your phone on social media than you do searching the scriptures for the wisdom that comes from God in order that he might transform your heart? Because to be conformed to this world, you have to do nothing. It takes no effort and brings much pain. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it takes great effort, but brings great reward. Now, those who have their minds renewed, it's gonna reveal itself in two main categories in Ephesians 4, okay? I just, I'm just, I've been tasked with watch, walking you through the passage, and I think it's interesting because this is rampant throughout scripture. There's two main ways in your life in this passage that you, we just watched it in a video, that you model the one who made you and you represent to the world around you, I'm different, I'm different, I've been changed. What are those two main ways? The first of which is your sexual purity. 
your sexual purity. Look back at verse 19 of Ephesians 4. It says, they having become callous, have given themselves over to every practice, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Verse 22, that you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, meaning the heart of lusts. And then it says in that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There are eight vice lists in the New Testament. So there are eight times in the New Testament where it describes the difference between an unbeliever and a believer in regards to how they look, in in regards to their character. You're not saved by your works, clear? There's nothing you could do to ever save yourself. But a genuine faith is never divorced of a heart that longs to obey. Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. We don't obey to earn God's love. We obey because we have received God's love. And the evidence of the, of the root that has taken place in our life is the fruit of righteousness. Seven out of the eight lists in the New Testament or describes the difference between someone who is an unbeliever and a believer. You know the top of the list every single time? It's what that person does with their sexual purity. It says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 this is the will of God, comma. You wanna know God's will for your life? I told you I, I know it because it's revealed so it doesn't need to be found. This is the will of God, comma, your sanctification. What does it mean to be sanctified? It's a great question because if it's the will of God for your life, you need to know it because you guys do math with letters in it so I think you can understand big words. I mean, why do we take algebra? Never mind. Okay, so, but moving on. It says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That means that you be different and set apart from the world. Okay, God, how am I to be set apart from the world? And it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does that mean? Comma, that is you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his body in honor. Do you wanna be different from the world around you and you wanna represent to God the gratitude that he has saved you and to model to the world around you, I've been transformed well, the top of the list and the first rung of the ladder is what you do with your mind and your body in regards to your sexual purity. If you have your Bibles, just turn with me to Ephesians 5. This is the video we were just watching. We're to imitate the one that made us. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And how do we do that? Well, we walk in love. Jesus demonstrated his love for you, right? Just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now what's the complete opposite of walking in the love of God? Verse three, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather of giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now God is in the business of saving sexual sinners. But there is no such person there is no such thing as a person who genuinely believes that does not see progressive growth into the image of God in this regard. You can struggle with sin, you can fall into sin, but there will be a great care and concern over what you do with your mind and your body in regards to your purity. And, and I say your mind and your body because there's two extremes. Uh, well, first of all, God, God's in the business of forgiving sinners. There are many, many sexual adulterers in heaven. 
But the person who's been saved goes, I, I want to continue to honor the Lord in that regard. But I, I fear that there's some of you who go, I haven't done this with an actual person, but just in my, the hiddenness of my room, I'm a slave to lust. And so the Bible always clarifies that this sexual sin involves not only our bodies, but our minds, because it says in Matthew 5, Jesus will say, I tell you, you know, it says do not look, you know, have adultery. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says, if the eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. You know why? Because what's at stake in your sexual purity involves your soul. Jesus says, for I tell you, it is better to go into heaven with one eye than for your entire body and soul to be thrown into hell. There's nothing worth the toying that you do with any sort of impurity. Girls, if a guy says he loves you and cares for you and wants your purity, he doesn't care for you. That belongs to your future husband. Guys, if a girl says she loves you and cares for you and wants your purity, they do not care for you. In a biblical sense. Because the greatest gift you could ever give in a relationship is fidelity to Christ and an honor to Christ, an obedience to Christ, and then your relationship will be that that's marked by great joy. If that's a struggle right now and you're a sophomore in high school, I would, I would break up, marry later, unless, mar- just, I, I just don't want you to understand how serious of a matter this is. Sexual sin is unlike every other sin. We always say, well, all sin is the same. No, it's not. The Bible says it's not. It says in 1 Corinthians 6 that flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that's committed is outside the body. But the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Meaning that when the Bible speaks, it places sexual sin in its own category. It is different than every sin. The damage it does, the disfellowship it serves with God, it blinds us from seeing God. But blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then Jesus is gonna take it to some, such corners in Matthew, but then again in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's gonna say, Paul's gonna say, can I as a Christian go and shack up with a prostitute if I'm a Christian? No, because I've been united with Christ. You know that you've not only been remade by God, God now lives inside of you through his Holy Spirit. Meaning that the Christian faith is not just someone that we believe in, it's someone who comes and takes residence within us. And so the question is asked in 1 Corinthians 6, can I as a Christian go and bind myself to a prostitute? Paul says, no, I can't. But the same thing that you should imagine because Paul's saying, can you imagine Jesus doing that? What's the answer? No. So the logical question is, can you imagine Jesus looking at a screen of pornography? Well, no, but you need to understand you've been united with Christ. That's why when we say in Christ, in Christ, in Christ throughout the epistles, Paul says that I am in Christ. It's that you are now identified and united with Christ because of his resurrection. And so you need to model your savior as we saw in our video. And that means that you run from anything that your savior would frown at. Sexual impurity is deadly It dishonors God and it deeply grieves God. And so if you're like me, you go, God, I want my mind renewed so that I can long to do what I want to do. I don't wanna just resist sin, which it's part of it. You make no provision, you run from temptation, it says. But God, I want to be increasingly disgusted at that. 
And the only way you'll be increasingly disgusted by sin is if you increasingly marvel at the love of God. But you will never marvel at the love of God if you don't have a deep commitment to the word of God. You understand that? We always say, well, we remain in his love, remain in his love. You will have a shallow understanding of the love of God as long as you have a shallow commitment to his word. Because as I mine the treasures in God's word, I see more of his character, I see more of my unworthiness, I see what I need in a savior, and then it makes all the more wonderful to me. I can't believe what God has done but you will never ever marvel in the way where you grow, 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 and grow until you meet God face to face. Have you ever met an 80 year old that's grabbed you and said, oh, he's sweeter to me now, my savior than ever before. You've never heard that from someone who had an inconsistent habit in his word. So I want my mind to be renewed in that regard. So not only though with your sexual purity, back in Ephesians 4, the second way that you model this transformation is what you do and with how you speak with your tongue, and in our context today, with your thumbs as you type. Verse 25, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another and his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Pause there for a second. The Bible never wants you to just stop doing bad things. It just says, hey, the guy that steals, let me give you a new job. You're to actually now work so that you can get stuff so you can give it away. The Bible wants to take a thief and not just tell him to stop stealing. The thief becomes a philanthropist because now he's been changed. He doesn't want to just stop doing bad stuff. He wants to honor God. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Why, Paul? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. How do we reflect the internal transformation that's taken place? Well, the good news for you, if you're going, I wanna be used by God. We watched in the video that these tools wanna be used by God, the chairs wanna be used by God. Well, the good news for you is being used by God doesn't start with doing anything big. It starts fundamentally by controlling something small, that being your tongue. Here's what James 1.26 says. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious. Now, in the book of James, there's only one... In the Bible itself, there's only one time in the Bible where this word religious is used. And it describes a devout worshiper of God. So when James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, he's describing the person that goes to Bible studies, Bible college, serves, worship band. Hey, brother, I'm a greeter at the door. If anybody thinks he is religious in that regard, and then there's a contrasting statement, but does not bridle his tongue, that person's religion is worthless. And he is self-deceived. Have you ever been deceived by someone you trusted? Have you? It's tragic. Have you ever been betrayed by someone you trusted? That's tragic. But do you know the saddest form of deception? Self-deception. And James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, that person is self-deceived. 
It means that they're caught up in a cloud of smoke. They can't even see what's around them and their religion is worthless. The tongue is so important. It might be a trivial matter to you. It might be a minor matter to you, but it is a major matter to God and God is going to issue repeatedly throughout the scripture that the tongue is the direct representation of the internal transformation that has taken place in our heart because out of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. The tongue is powerful, it says in James, but here in Ephesians 4, we're just looking at it, we're just to speak truth in verse 25. I live in California, and we actually have five seasons in California, the fifth of which is fire season. These fires devastate communities, they uproot families, and they bring much pain, grief, and loss. But the interesting thing about a massive fire that destroys thousands of acres is its beginning. It starts not with a great blaze, but with a what? A tiny spark. And the Bible looks at you, it's a living and active word, and says your tongue is a fire in James 3. In Proverbs 16, 27, it says an ungodly man digs up evil in his lips, there is burning fire. It says that we're in verse 25 to lay aside all falsehood and speak the truth, each one of you. This sounds so easy, but if we're honest with ourselves, all of us are in some ways compulsive liars. But can I just encourage you from God's word? What matters deeply to God is that you begin being totally honest with him and with others. In your, li- in your mind, you might just be an exaggerator or an embellisher. But in Proverbs, when it says that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, three of those things have to do with our tongues. You think of big sins, you think of murder and adultery. But in Romans 1, when it describes a culture that is run away from God, in the middle of the list are liars and gossips. I don't know if a sin more rampant in the church than the sins of the tongue. It says in verse 29 that we're to let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification. How many unwholesome words are you to allow out of your mouth? What's the answer? None, zero. It says, but only such a word that is good for edification. Edification means that building words. Edification means that you only speak words that make souls stronger. The Christian is to never say things like, I knew you would do this, classic you. You always do this. Look at her, look at Stephanie, look at Chad. What a joke, they're always falling apart. Those words don't make souls any stronger. Those are tearing down words. And the Christian who has been changed by God knows that everyone else is made in the image of God. And so they don't look at God's fellow creatures and tear them down. They go, I want to build them up, meaning that every single decision and conversation in your life is under the banner of, I want to go and make souls stronger. I want to challenge when needed, encourage the faint heart. I want to help those who are weak. And I do that with my words. It says, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, meaning that not only what you say, but when to not speak is essential. There's a wisdom here. You don't love to talk. You love to listen so that it'll give grace to those who hear. What's at stake here? Well, it's not just that God is mad at sin. Look what happens in verse 30. 
In this regard, it says there's only two times in the New Testament where it talks about this grieving of God. This grief means God is hurt. What is God hurt by, Paul? God is hurt. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. God is hurt when you use your tongue that was made to honor and praise God and encourage and bless one another. God is deeply grieved. The same word for grieved is used when the disciples heard that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and die and it says that their hearts were grieved because it was their savior. And it says God is moved to grief. Why? When you use your tongues in a way that dishonors God and brings down your neighbor. We're to speak pure words. Look at Ephesians 5 verse three again. It says immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. I I can't tell you how common it is today for us to just joke sexually and to joke crudely and crassly. It's common in the shows that you watch. And sometimes you become almost desensitized to it. So maybe just put this banner over your life. If I wouldn't say it in front of Jesus Christ who died for crude humor, I'm not gonna say it. No filthiness or silly talk. Silly talk just means crude, crass humor. I'm not talking about other people in a way that degrades them. I'm not joking about sex or anything else because that what? It's improper for those who have been saved by God. Let me read this for you. It says, who am I? I have no respect for justice. I maim without killing. I break hearts and ruin lives. I am cruel and malicious and gather strength with age. The more I am quoted, the more I am believed. I flourish at every level of society. My victims are helpless. They cannot protect themselves against me because I have no name and I have no face. To track me down is impossible. The harder you try, the more elusive I become. I am nobody's friend. Once I ruin a reputation, it is never the same. I topple governments, I ruin marriages, I destroy careers, I cause heartache, I cause sleepless nights, I wreck churches, separate Christians, spawn suspicion, generate grief, and I make innocent people cry on their pillows. What's my name? My name is Gossip. Gossip is a particularly deadly sin that has destroyed more churches, damaged more relationships, and deteriorated more people than any other sin. God hates gossip. Gossip is quickly told, quickly heard, and then quickly spread. But we're to be like our Savior. And it says in Matthew 4, or Luke 4.22 that the people were marveling at his authority, but then 10 verses earlier, it says that they were marveling at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. I care so deeply about you guys becoming more like Jesus. There's so much to be said in regards to how we model God and how our affections are changed. But in Acts 15, when there's a new church, it just says, okay, well, there's a new church. Okay, just give them the basics. And the basics were, don't be sexually impure and don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Meaning like, let's just boil this down for the new church there. 
And if I could just boil this down for you based on our passage in Ephesians 4. Do you want to be changed by God? It starts with what you do with your mind and your body in regards to your sexual purity. And it starts also with your tongue and what you say and what you do to praise God and to bless and encourage one another. And the way that we do that is not by going, I must be better. The way that we do that is by submitting our minds to the scripture, saying, God, as I commit my life to your word, would you please change my heart? You've already changed it positionally, but would you change it progressively? Because I'm a Christian, but I still struggle with sin. I'm still tempted by sin. So every day I go to the word of God. That's legalism. No, it's not legalism. It's not legalism for me to have to eat food. I need it to stay alive, and I need it to be healthy. And you need to be in the nourishment of God's word and amongst his people and in prayer so that you will be spiritually healthy and have your affections changed. Last thing I would say is, um, this is just extra. Some of you guys are seniors and you're going away to college or I don't don't know what your plan is. I don't know what your future job will look like, but there's no college that makes up for not being close to a good church. And so make your decision on where you go to college, on where you'll go to church, and the Lord will bless your life. People, People make decisions on their academics and disregard their spiritual well-being, and that's dangerous. Secondly, when you go from college to the workplace, it's not worth the extra zero on your paycheck if you're not near a people of God that love the word of God and are committed to becoming more like the son of God. There's nothing in your life worth neglecting what's most precious. And what's precious to me, and I hope what's precious to you, is the Savior who bought me with his blood and who fills my heart with his love. And I want to live my life with people that are in that same wavelength. It's hard to get to know a group of people over 36 hours, but I've been grateful to talk with some of you guys. And I truly do hope that if your heart was changed this weekend, that you just become, in in some ways, like our Savior, but you become like those around you that are pursuing God with their whole heart. Can I pray for you? And then we'll continue to celebrate what God has done, worshiping together. Jesus, we thank you (coughs) for the word of God that is living and active and able to pierce and penetrate even the deepest recesses of our heart. God, I care for these students Lord, would you give them a love for Jesus Christ? But Lord, we love because you first loved us, meaning that our love for God is always in direct proportion to the magnitude of our understanding of your love for us. But Lord, we will never have a big love for God unless we have a large commitment to his word because Jesus says, abide in my love, and in the next breath he'll say, abide in my word because we cannot abide in his love unless we're abiding in his word, which details to us the expanse of his love. And so Lord, I pray that you would use these lives for your glory, for your kingdom. And Lord, we know that the first way we can be used by you is to be changed by you. Because nothing preaches, there's no stronger sermon than a godly life. Lord, I thank you for these leaders. Would you bless them and encourage them? We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you guys.